2: Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is Part 2 of a two-part story. Please listen to Season 2, Episode 4 for more details on this case. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. During April 2016, Helen Bailey, a successful author, disappeared. She allegedly left a note found by her husband to be asking that no one contact her as she needed some time alone. Over the following weeks and months, appeals were made by Helen's friends and family in the hope someone might have spotted her. At 7am on July 11, 2016, a team of police officers arrived at the home of Helen Bailey and Ian Stewart in Royston, Hertfordshire. Detective Sergeant Dave Sharp from the Major Crime Team introduced himself to Ian, who was half asleep and still wearing his dressing gown. The Detective Sergeant explains what his team are doing at the property. Good morning,
3: Ian. Good morning. How are you? I'm Detective Sergeant Dave Sharp from the Major Crime Team
2: i to search the address, section 8, of course, section 8 I'm As Ian was led upstairs to get changed, he can be heard saying, I don't know why the garage door is open.
4: Okay, well, we can speak to the police station, right? We're station. So, what needs, what needs to happen, you need to really get some clothes on, okay, then you need
3: to go to the police station, and these officers will transport you to the police station.
2: On his way to Stevenage Police Station, he repeatedly asked if Helen had been found. Once at the station, after Ian had been processed, he was interviewed, however remained silent throughout.
5: You're the last person to see her alive. You wait four days to report her missing. You're vague about your movements on the 11th, at best, vague. You take a duvet to the tip on the 11th. You don't report her missing for four days. The following day, you go to Broadstairs. I don't know why, why did you go there? Did you see Helen on the 16th? Because according to the technical information we've got, her phone is in Broadstairs. And you're in Broadstairs. Was Helen there? She wasn't, was she? Did you kill Helen Bailey? Did you intend to kill her, or was this an accident? What happened? Did you just lose control, lose, just lose it? Some big argument, and you killed her, and you've been covering up ever since? Because if that's what's happened, you need to tell us now. Because this could be your last opportunity to speak to the police about this. You are here on suspicion of murder. You need to tell us what happened. There is transactions where it clearly shows, from what I've seen, that you have taken money, or someone has taken money, which I believe to be you, from her account into your joint account, which you have obviously access to. Therefore, you've now got access to an extra £12,000. You will have benefited from her death, is that correct? Financially, you would have benefited from her death, would you not say? Did anyone force you to carry out the murder of Helen Bailey? was that duvet taken to the tip because it had Helen's blood on it. Is that why I went to the tip? That's quite a big accusation for me to make to you, isn't it, would you agree? I'm suggesting to you that you took that duvet to the tip, but because it had blood on it or something from Helen. Because she had died, she had been murdered in your house As part of that clean-up operation, you took that duvet Mm -hmm. to the dump.
4: Is that right?
2: Ian was released on bail 24 hours later. After Ian was released from custody police began to re-examine the couple's home in Royston. On July 12th, a police officer looked underneath the white jeep which belonged to Helen and discovered a hatch cover that hadn't been spotted during the initial search of the property in April 2016. A piece of plywood covered the hatch which had been painted the same colour as the garage floor. The officer lifted the plywood and attempted to open the cover However, it was securely fastened. After a number of failed attempts, the hatch was finally pried open, revealing a cesspit and a specialist drainage team arrived on July 15th. Stephen Oliphant, a sergeant at the scene, had to use a garden hoe to break the crust that sat on top of the fluid. He stirred the tool in the cesspit and hit upon something large. As he slowly pushed the hoe against the weight of the sewage, a human arm began to emerge. A body, which looked to be fully intact and clearly female, was recovered. Alongside the body was a pillowcase, a dog's chew toy, and the remains of a miniature dachshund. Ian Stewart was again arrested, and the following day he was charged with the murder of his fiancée, Ellen Bailey. Throughout the months that followed, the prosecution began to build their case against Ian Stewart and on December 12, 2016, Ian's defence team submitted their case statement. Ian was being charged with one count of murder, one count of fraud, one count of preventing a lawful burial and three counts of perverting the course of justice. His defence team alleged that Ian was being subjected to blackmail by two men called Nick and Joe and they were most likely responsible for Helen's murder. The defence explained these two men must have placed Helen's body in the cesspit in order to make it look like Ian had been involved. He denied all charges against him, and a trial would take place a month later, in January 2017. At 10am on Tuesday... January 10th, 2017, a trial began at St. Albans Crown Court. The charges were read aloud and the judge told the jury, it is very important this is a trial by jury, not by press report. The prosecution alleged on the morning of April 11th, 2016, Ian Stewart gave Helen Bailey a significant amount of zopiclone in her breakfast, which likely rendered her almost unconscious and between 10.51am and 2.30pm, she was suffocated. The jury was told that Ian had been slowly drugging Helen by placing a sedative in her breakfast each day. The prosecutor told the court that the murder was financially motivated as Ian would be set to inherit a large sum of cash, pension payments, Helen's property and a life insurance policy that was said to be worth more than a million pounds. Stuart Trimmer QC opened the case stating, Helen Bailey and her dog were killed. The body of Helen was put in a cesspit underneath the garage of a home in which she lived. In the weeks before her murder, Helen was concerned she was unnaturally sleepy. The Crown's case is that the defendant secretly administered a sleeping drug to her over the course of a few months. He had been prescribed the drug himself for sleeping problems. Stuart Trimmer added, The Crown would say this, Once Helen Bailey was effectively sedated, suffocation would have been quite simple, enabling the defendant to kill her. It is possible to exclude the possibility of natural disease contributing to death. There was no injuries of assault or restraint. No damage was done to her before she was put in that pit. So how was it that she died? The Crown say this defendant killed her as part of a long-standing plan which involved the sedation of her. There was increasing momentum towards the business of getting married and clear progress that Stuart would be financially secure. This murder was planned from early 2016. There was no doubt Stuart would benefit financially. This was a cold-blooded murder. The defendant chose the method to obscure it and set about to do just that. During the second day of the trial, forensic pathologist Nathaniel Carey took to the stand. He explained that Helen showed no indication of broken bones, no evidence of bruising around her neck and no signs that she had been struck over the head, but stated it's unlikely that natural causes resulted or played any part in Helen's death. He went on to say that after Helen's body was discovered, he took samples of her hair. The results highlighted that she had been given Zopiclone during the period between early February to April 2016. The drug was also found in Helen's chest cavity fluid, liver and muscle tissue, however the drug had never been prescribed to her. Helen had previously told family members that she had become extremely fatigued and was concerned that she was unnaturally sleepy. She searched the internet to find out what could be the cause and forensic analysis of a computer's hard drive highlighted search history, which included, I'm so tired, why do I keep falling asleep, and falling asleep in the afternoon? Helen told her brother John that she was concerned, as this mystery condition was also making her forgetful, as during one occasion on March 13th, 2016, she left her dog Boris on the beach. This was very unlike her, as she saw Boris as one of the family and he would never leave her side. Helen said to him that it felt like she was fighting against a wind that didn't exist. She also told her mother during the month leading up to her disappearance that she didn't even recognise her own hands while she was working at a computer. Both her brother John and her mother attributed this to stress and exhaustion. It transpired that Ian had been prescribed the drug at the start of 2016 as he had been having problems sleeping. In the courtroom, Dr. Carey said, It is relevant the deceased appears to have been intoxicated with Zopiclone at the time of her death. He added, It's possible she could have been put down the well in an unconscious state. That would be another possibility to consider. He went on further, Not only was Helen concealed by a third party, but it seems she likely died at the hands of a third party by some means. Details of the post-mortem examination completed on Helen's dog Boris were also presented. Boris was seven to eight years old and in good health prior to his death. A vet, Dr Jonathan Williams, provided a statement which read, Due to the very poor preservation of the carcass due to severe post-mortem self-digestion, the interpretation was extremely compromised. It cannot therefore be established whether the animal was alive or dead when placed in the septic tank. He explained the cause of death could not be determined from the post-mortem. In the days that followed, the jury visited the couple's home on Bulldock Road and there also played the call Ian made to a non-emergency number on April 15th 2016. He had made the call as he was under pressure from those concerned about Helen's safety. During the second week of the trial, Jamie Stewart, one of Ian's sons, took to the stand. He stated that on April 11th, 2016, he had been out for most of the day working and then playing bowls. He spoke to his father over the phone before meeting him later. The two ate dinner at home and no mention was made of Helen's disappearance until the next day when Jamie inquired where she was. His father explained that Helen had gone to Broadstairs to have some time to herself and he told Jamie about the that she had left.
4: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
0: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy, that's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me.
1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: On January 20th, 2017, the court heard from Nicole Goodyear, a police sergeant who visited the couple's home. She explained, I spoke to Ian Stewart. He was very interested in what we were doing. He wanted to follow us everywhere. He was inquisitive as to why we were doing a thorough search. Everything we did was questioned. He was there watching our every single move. He was almost right on top of me, shoulder-length away. The prosecution presented CCTV footage of the afternoon of April 11th in which Ian can be seen travelling to a local rubbish tip in Royston. He can be seen disposing of a large white object which looks to be a duvet. That afternoon... A monthly standing order that had previously transferred £600 from the couple's joint account to Ian's bank account was amended. The amount was changed from £600 to £4,000. At 8.56pm that same day, Ian was spotted on CCTV getting a Chinese takeaway for dinner and two days later seen returning to the rubbish tip. Police confirmed that Helen's mobile phone never connected to a mobile network after a disappearance, however they could verify that the phone's Wi-Fi connection was activated at her address in Broadstairs when Ian was said to have been at the property. The Wi-Fi router disappeared after police completed an initial search of the holiday home in Broadstairs. It was found hidden away a few months later after police completed a further search of the couple's home in Royston. On February 8th, 2017, Ian Stewart took to the witness stand and the defence put forward their case. Ian admitted that the note allegedly left by Helen was a spur-of-the-moment lie and she had in fact been kidnapped by two men called Nick and Joe. He hadn't told police about the kidnapping as he was concerned for Helen's safety. Ian claimed that he had no choice but to deceive those closest to Helen. The two men in question were said to be business associates of Helen's previous husband, John Sinfield. They had threatened both Ian and Helen at their property on numerous occasions and Ian claimed they were looking for some old paperwork from John's past business deals. He explained that even after his arrest, he didn't tell police for fear of what these men might do as they had killed Helen's dog, Boris. Ian was told by the men to take Helen's mobile phone to the property in Broadstairs. The police confirmed that Ian travelled there after his phone was reported pinging off a mast at 1.24pm on April 16th. Helen's mobile phone then connected to the Wi-Fi router in Broadstairs. Ian explained that apparently one of the men, Nick, who was heavily tattooed, visited him on April 15th. Ian was assaulted by Nick and told, You don't seem to understand how serious it is. This is really serious. If you don't do what we say or tell the police or anyone, you won't see Helen again. Nick apparently added, Make sure I see you in Broadstairs tomorrow. Ian told the court he arrived at a cliff edge on the curve of the bay at Broadstairs and handed over Helen's mobile phone. The phone was then disposed of by Nick and Joe, who wouldn't let Ian speak to Helen. It was never recovered by detectives. Ian further explained to the jury. He felt suicidal. He said, I felt like harming myself in broadstairs. I just wanted everything to stop. I was on the top of a cliff. I climbed over the railings. Simon Russell Flint QC, who was acting on behalf of the defence, said that the standing order, which had been changed, had in fact been done so by Helen. The defence told the court the author had plans to renovate a spare room in the house as a surprise for Ian. The only reason... Why Ian went on to access the couple's joint account was his concern that the two men, Nick and Joe, may have stolen money from it. In addition, the reason Ian can be heard saying, I don't know why the garage door is open, on the day of his arrest, related to a concern that the property had been burgled. Under cross-examination by the prosecution, Stuart Trimmer presented evidence that a fragment of information relating to the standing order amendment had been found on the hard drive of Ian's laptop. Analysis by forensic experts concluded that Ian had attempted to erase its contents, but not all the data was deleted, leaving a segment of information that could be recovered. The prosecution also suggested that Nick and Joe were a figment of Ian Stuart's imagination but the description and names were modelled on people he knew when he lived in Basingbourne. Both of these individuals, Joe and Nick, were asked to enter the courtroom briefly, and the similarity between the description that Ian initially gave and their physical appearance was quite evident. Ian Stewart denied that these were the same individuals he'd described. After a six-week trial on February 21, 2017, A jury of seven men and five women retired to consider their verdict. This was reached only five and a half hours later. On February 22nd, Ian Stewart was found guilty of murder, fraud, three counts of perverting the course of justice and one count of preventing a lawful burial. Ian closed his eyes as the charges were read out. As he left the courtroom, he looked at his eldest son. His son could not return his father's gaze and Ian was taken from the court to Bedford Prison. After the trial, Detective Chief Inspector Jerome Kent gave a statement outside the courtroom. I'd
3: like to say that I'm very pleased with the verdict today. Uh, My opinion is that it's the right and correct verdict. Uh, However, there are no winners in this. The family are absolutely devastated at Helen's loss. John Sinfield's family have uh, have been extremely upset by the way that their um, loved one has been used during during court. And, of course, Ian Stewart's own family have been lied to and are extremely upset by the verdict and the lies that they've been told and that they've witnessed during the course
2: of this trial. The press also spoke to senior prosecutor Charles White, who works for the Thames and Chiltern Crown Prosecution Service.
3: This was a, a, immediately apparent. This was a very shocking crime. When the body of Helen Bailey was discovered on the 15th of July the police approached the Crown Prosecution Service for charging advice. When I became acquainted with the facts and spoke to the officers concerned, it was immediately apparent to me that there was only one real candidate for this very serious crime, namely Ian Stewart, and I advised accordingly that he be charged with murder and other related offences. He had no previous convictions, uh, which was interesting, and he was 55 years of age or thereabouts. He clearly had been plotting this crime for for quite a long time, it's difficult to say exactly when, counsel for the Crown suggested it was from virtually the beginning of the relationship. He, all the all the pieces were in place by the time of the murder, namely the will had been a change in his favour, he'd acquired power of attorney. He was playing a very long game and uh, it came to fruition on the uh, 11th of April, but he did have opportunities before then to do the crime, but for various reasons was unable to. He... Plainly, as someone who lacks any remorse or empathy, he was prepared to kill Boris the dog as well in order to go through with the charade that uh, he was presenting to the police and to the public. It it was shocking also in the sense that it was planned, and the administration of the Zopiclone sleeping drug in the the months leading up to the murder uh, was also a striking feature. Many murders are done in the heat of the moment. This was unusual in that it was premeditated and coldly executed.
2: John Bailey, Helen's brother, also gave a statement.
4: When Helen's body was discovered last July, some three months after she had gone missing, we said we knew Helen would wish, like us, for justice to be done. We wish to thank the Police and Crown Prosecution Service for their unswerving professionalism and support, and to those individuals who gave up their time to be members of the jury or to give evidence in court as now the perpetrator of this crime has been brought to book. We also wish to thank the many individuals for their support, some of whom have been grieving for their own personal loss, as their acts of kindness have been invaluable to us. Our thoughts are very much with Ian's family. Despite this victory for justice, there can be no celebration. Our families have been devastated And nothing can ever bring Helen back to us, or truly right this wrong. A long shadow of loss has been cast over the lives of so many who will always remember Helen with enduring love and affection. At her memorial service, we asked attendees to write down what Helen's life had inspired them towards. From over 160 affirmative responses, one person wrote, to help people when they needed a friend. With these
2: words. Sentencing began at St. Albans Crown Court on February 23, 2017. Judge Andrew Bright, QC, addressed Ian Stewart. I'm firmly of the view that you currently pose a very real danger to women with whom you form a relationship. I've read the impact statement of Helen Bailey's brother John, dated the 14th of February 2017, in which he sets out the effect which the cruel murder of his sister has had and will continue to have on him. Helen's mother and father and her many close friends who all feel an enormous sense of outrage at the way she and her dog Boris met their deaths at your hands. As John Bailey rightly observes, the world has lost a gifted author and a family and friends will have to live for the rest of their lives with the deep sense of loss your wicked crime has inflicted upon them. Whilst we will never know whether you may have had some additional motive for killing the woman who loved you and wanted to be your wife, I am in no doubt that this was a clear case of murder, done in the expectation of gain, with aggravating features which make it difficult to imagine a more heinous crime. Ian Stewart was sentenced to life in prison and will have to serve a minimum of 34 years before he is considered for release. Due to his health issues, he will likely end his days behind bars as he will be eligible for parole on January 22, 2051 when he is 90 years old. Helen Bailey's case serves as a stark warning that although she suffered no reported physical abuse at the hands of Ian Stewart before her death, she was a victim of coercive control, which is more common than we might think. The act is identified when a perpetrator repeatedly behaves in a way that makes the victim feel controlled, dependent, scared or isolated. Although the signs may seem obvious in some circumstances, this might not always be the case. Often the perpetrator will act in such a way that the victim does not even recognize they are being abused. Examples of this include isolating the victim from friends and family, monitoring their day-to-day movements, threatening them, controlling their finances or damaging their property. If you or anyone you know is a victim of coercive control, evidence such as emails, text messages, photographs of injuries and diaries will help authorities build a case against those responsible. Once reported, a court can put in place a restraining order to protect the victim. For more details, please visit nationaldomesticviolencehelpline.org.uk. So where are we now? Ian Stewart will never see a penny of Helen Bailey's fortune. Her estate is to be split between her friends, relatives, favourite charities and Ian Stewart's sons. After Ian Stewart's conviction, DCI Jerome Kent of the Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire and Hertfordshire Major Crime Unit told the press that the circumstances surrounding the death of Diane Stewart would be re-examined. While there will be no criminal investigation, DCI Kent stated, It would be expected of me to have to look into Diane's death following this conviction to see if there was anything that could be done. It's not a criminal investigation. It's not a murder investigation. There are no suspects. When someone is convicted of murder or involved in murder, it is only right that we would look back at their past. We are a very long way off seeing if any other offences have been committed. After Ian Stewart's sentencing, his sons released a statement. We are fully aware of the re-examination of Diane's death and support the police in their actions and would like to thank the police for how they have supported our family during this difficult time. Helen's mother and father, Eileen and George Bailey, are still coming to terms with the loss of their daughter. This has been made all the more difficult by the fact that ninety-one year old George is now suffering from dementia and can't bear to look at any photos of Helen. Her passing has cast a long shadow over the family. However, John, Helen's brother, has been a rock for his mother and father. Despite the circumstances of her loss, Eileen remains extremely compassionate towards Ian Stewart's family. She spoke to the Mirror newspaper and stated, It is so sad because Helen was so close to both of his sons. Now his parents have to go through all this. I feel sorry for them. The only grain of comfort Eileen has found is the fact that Helen's body was finally located. She told the Mirror newspaper, You see on TV about people going missing and never being found. That was our biggest fear. But we brought her body home. And she was here at home with us the night before her funeral. That felt right somehow. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com This week's podcast recommendation is already gone. Host Nina shares stories of the missing, the mysterious, the murdered and the lost. Please stick around for a trailer at the end of this episode. If you would like to support the podcast... And receive ad free content and other extras, go to patreon.com forward slash they walk among us. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast or follow us on Instagram and Facebook under they walk among us podcast.
0: I'm Nina Instead, host of the Already Gone podcast. Each week I share stories of the missing, the mysterious, the murdered, and the lost. Stories that I share tend to focus on Michigan or the Great Lakes region, and they're stories you may not have heard before. I hope you'll join us.